Romans chapter 1, I'm going to preach uh, from three verses, 14, 15, and 16. I've entitled this, I am, are you? Let's look at Romans chapter 1, verse 14. Paul said, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Speak to our hearts, challenge our lives. Lord, may we become ambassadors, witnesses for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Robert and Marcia had been married for about 20 years. Early one morning, Marcia awoke and reached over to touch her husband, but he wasn't in the bed. He was gone. She quickly turned on the lights. It was 4 a.m. and the house was empty. Fresh tire tracks glistened in the snow-covered driveway. Two hours later, a police officer told Marcia how her husband had died. He had driven down the nearby highway at a screaming speed, veered onto a narrow road, and then aimed his car over an embankment and into a river. Robert had ended his life because, as he had recently told Marcia, everything I've worked for, everything that means anything to me, has turned to ashes. The business that had been his all-consuming passion for more than a dozen years had failed. Robert had said, there's no aim left in life. Nothing makes sense anymore. Dr. Julius Segal, the Jewish psychologist who related that story, said that it shows how vital it is to grasp an anchoring purpose for our existence. The famous Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl learned this lesson in the Nazi death camps. He said that our ability to survive depends upon the quality of our purpose in living. Dr. Carl Jung, the famous psychoanalyst, stated, About one-third of my cases are not suffering from any clinically definable neurosis, but from the senselessness and aimlessness of their own lives. What's interesting to me is these men I've quoted are non-Christians. Yet they recognize that emotional and spiritual health depends upon having a meaningful purpose in one's life. Let me break it down for you church people. God didn't place us here just to make big money or to live in huge houses or to eat scrumptious food, or to just have a good time. He wants our lives to count for something. He wants to do something with us that really makes a difference. He wants us, that is you and I, to be ambassadors for Christ, to be His witnesses. He wants us to influence men, women, and children toward His Son, Jesus Christ. This was really Paul's driving force. This was Paul's purpose in living, 
and it was the passion of his heart. He had committed his life to sharing the good news, the gospel. That word gospel descends from an old English term, God spell. The word spell in its original usage means to say something very clearly, to spell it out. The gospel is the message of hope which God spells out to the human race. It is the power of God unto salvation. <coughs> all right, forget that. Let's don't do that, all right? There are three times in these three verses that the Apostle Paul said, I am, in reference to the gospel. The phrase I am is really an important phrase in Scripture because it, it takes us to the very essence of personality. When Moses asked God, what is your name? Jehovah responded, I am who I am. John's gospel has the famous seven I am statements of Jesus Christ. And here in Romans chapter 1, we have the three I am statements of Paul. He said I am in verse 14, verse 15, and verse 16. The first time he said it, verse 14, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. In other words, Paul said, I am obligated. I am obligated. He's talking about an indebtedness that he has not only to God, but also to his generation. Jesus used this same word, debtor, to describe a man who owed 10,000 talents to a king. An unbelievable amount of money. Something he could never pay back. Really what Paul is saying is this. I owe it to God and I owe it to my generation to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. I have a holy obligation. I have a divine duty to God and to my world to share the good news. Admiral Lord Nelson took his intrepid British fleet to face the French and the Spaniards. His flagship, the ship he was on, was called the Victory. I kind of like that. What a great name for a ship. The Victory. And the morning of the battle, he ran a signal up the flagpole that said, England expects every man to do his duty. <coughs> Later that same day, he lie dying on the deck of the victory. He had been shot by a Spanish sharpshooter. And he whispered out his last words. Thank God I've done my duty. Let me declare a Bible truth to you. God became a man. He shed his blood on the cross. He purchased us from sin and the devil, and he has given to us eternal life. Then, he places us strategically throughout this planet to tell other people about him. And we have a duty. Church, listen to me. Each one of us has an obligation to God and to our world. That's why we're here. And the greatest life anyone can have is the one which ends on the deck of the victory 
by looking back over its days, saying, Thank God, I've done my duty. <coughs> Sometimes we have to rely on this as our chief motivating force. Sometimes I do things which I don't really enjoy doing. I don't really enjoy being called out in the middle of the night. I don't enjoy visiting hurting people in the hospital. I don't really enjoy officiating funerals. I don't necessarily enjoy these things, but I have a duty. It's what God called me to do. And even though I don't get a thrill out of it or frolic my way through funeral services, I do them because it's my duty. Someone asked the missionary Hudson Taylor, Did you go to China because you love Chinese people? He said, No. I went to China because I love God. Our world today has gotten away from that. Our catchphrase is, I owe it to myself. And if something isn't convenient or something isn't enjoyable, we just don't do it. But church, we have a duty to God and to our generation. We have a message to share. We have a church to build. We have a world to save. We have an obligation. I'm indebted to God and I am indebted to my fellow man. Whether they're my neighbors or people who live across the sea, whether they're friendly to me or hate my guts, I am indebted to them to share with them the good news of the gospel. But Paul was motivated by more than sense of, a sense of duty. He, he didn't share the gospel just because he had to. He wanted to. It was his passion and adventure of life. So in verse 14 he said, I am a debtor both to the Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. And then he said, number two, I'm eager. I'm not, not only indebted to do it, I'm eager to do it. Verse 15 so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome as well. You know, every time I read a passage, I, I, I ask myself, how does that translate to me? How would I say that? And I guess I would say that by this, let me in, coach. <laughs> coach, let me in. I'm ready to play, you know. Hey, I'm ready to do it. I am ready to preach. I'm ready to share the good. I'm ready to go gossip the gospel. Let me in, Lord. Let me go. I'm ready to do it. The word ready here is the Greek word prothemos. It actually means willing, ready, and of an eager mind. Willing, ready, and of an eager mind. I read about an underground church in China back in the late 80s. The author of the article I read described the dangers daily facing the believers there. And he told about an American Christian who arrived on a Chinese farming village about 4.30 in the morning. His guide took him to this uh, courtyard surrounded by gray, dark buildings and houses and, and a grove of trees. When he, when he entered the courtyard, it was packed with 600 Christians. 
most of them under the age of 30. And all of them were on their knees worshiping God. The meeting continued for almost three days. Because of the danger that was involved in worshiping like this, these believers <coughs> arrived before daylight and they didn't leave until after dark. They only ate one meal a day and it was boiled noodles. The American was humbled. He went away saying this, Where in the West could you find such a hunger for faith that would inspire people to meet underground in the cold eating nothing but noodles? It reminded me something that Vance Havner once said. We sit in church and yawn over truths for which our forefathers bled and died. We need a constant revival of passion and eagerness. We need not forget why we're here. I don't get on to you very often, do I? I try to be as positive as I can because this is a positive message that we preach. But church, I'm burdened. I've seen it coming for months. I see where we're at and perhaps where we're going, and it concerns me. We've got a great, no doubt about it, Kavanaugh is one of a kind because you make it that way. The problem is we like the way it is way too much. We are very comfortable with the way our church is, aren't we? I mean, by and large, most people who attend Kavanaugh love this church. We love the music. We love the ministries. We love most of the ministers. Yeah. We love everything about it. It's a great church. It's a great place. And that's wonderful. That's fine. But the problem that brings is complacency. We like it the way it is. We like things the way they are. We like sitting where we sit. And when new people come, when there's growth in the church, it changes everything. And we don't like that. Do we? And I see a complacency coming across our congregation because we're just too happy. My prayer is, God, shake things up a little bit. Lord, would you, would you start a fire under some of our pews? Lord, please, would, would there be a revival of passion, a revival of eagerness to get out and share the good news, to see this church continue to grow. Really, this word prothomos occurs several times in the New Testament. And it tells us of four particular areas in which we should feel a sense of excitement and eagerness when it comes to fleshing out our Christian life. First, in Bible study, Acts chapter 17, verse 11, talks about the people of Berea receiving the message with great prothomos, that is, with eagerness, and they search the Scriptures daily. Hey, man, you tell me, when was the last time you woke up one morning and said, 
I can't wait to get in God's Word. I am so excited and so eager to break open my Bible because I know when I open it up, God is going to jump out of that page and encounter me. It's the way we ought to be with Bible study. Great eagerness to get into the Word of God. Secondly, in Christian service, 1 Peter chapter 5, we're told to be prothemos, that is, eager to serve, ready, willing, of an eager mind. Preacher, just tell me where I can be, where can I serve? What, what, what we worship class can I take? Preacher? A surprising area is in giving to God. Wake up. 2 Corinthians, Paul uses the word four times to talk about our attitude in giving. We are to be eager to give, ready to give, willing to give. Every Sunday morning, I sit right back up there during the offering and I watch y'all. Very seldom do I see prothomos come across your face when the offering plate is passed. But you know what? That's not the way it should be. We should be eager to give, not only of our substance, but also of our life. And then one fifteen, Paul says that we should feel this same eagerness in witnessing and telling other people about Christ. Again, it was Vance Havner who said, The gospel is not something we come to church to hear. It is something we go from church to tell. And you know what? There's a thousand different ways we can share our faith. <clears throat> Whether it's through our life, by our lip, or through literature, we can tell others about eternal life through Jesus Christ. I can't wait to tell somebody. That should be our attitude. You know what? Again, every morning when we get up, we should have that attitude. I cannot wait to tell somebody about Jesus. I can't wait to share the good news. I can't wait to tell that person at work. I can't wait to tell that person at school. I can't wait to get to Walmart and push my cart into somebody else's cart so I can tell them the good news. I'm ready. I can't wait. You know what? Many of us never get around to it. Many of us never do it. A lot of reasons why. Maybe the number one reason is because we're embarrassed. We're ashamed. Paul talks about that in his third I am statement, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. <coughs> Paul said, I am unashamed. You know, and maybe, maybe right here today, since there's a bunch of us Christians in this room and We've been worshiping the Lord and praising Him. It, it seems kind of strange that anyone would actually be ashamed of Christ. If I won a million dollars in a magazine sweepstake, I'd, I'd be glad to tell you about it. <laughs> if I got a call from golf's number one ranking professional, Tiger Woods, and he said, Hey, Will, meet me at Ben Garen. We'll go around. And I beat him? I'd tell you about it. I told the first service, uh, 
Zach and J.K. just had their first baby, little Wyatt Remington, good-looking kid. I went and saw him Friday evening, just a, a great-looking little baby. And I can tell you, J.K. and Zach, were, they were just glowing. I mean, they're proud parents. And, and it brought a, a flood of memories back to my own life when all three of my kids were born. I couldn't wait to share the good news that these kids had been born. Well, here's the deal, folks. God has given us a greater gift than any magazine sweepstake could offer. He has won the greatest battle of all times. He has given to us new birth into His family. Why in the world would anyone be ashamed to share that news that is so good and so great? But sometimes we are, aren't we? I don't know, maybe it's because we live on hostile territory. Maybe it's because we're behind enemy lines. The world mocks at Christ. The world makes fun of the Christian faith. Even Timothy struggled with it. So Paul wrote to him and said, Do not be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ or of me. Be strong and courageous. Along these same thoughts, Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what will it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For, listen to this, Jesus said, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the clouds of his glory with his holy angels. Wow. Wow. Church, that means... That means that sometimes we've just got to take a deep breath, open our mouths, and tell somebody about Jesus. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. And if people are going to be saved, it's going to be because they have heard the good news of the gospel, and it is going to be because you opened your mouth, and told them. Some years ago, the theologian Norman Geisler wrote a candid article in which he said, I have a confession to make. I was a director for a Christian youth organization for three years. I pastored a church for nine years. I was the professor of a Christian college for six years, and in all that time, I did not witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. I scarcely ever shared my faith one-on-one with anyone. He gave all the same reasons that we give. Afraid, ashamed, but eventually he became convicted by the words of a little song that said, Lead me to some soul today. Oh, teach me, Lord, just what to say. Those words became a sincere prayer for him. 
Every morning he woke and spoke those words and it changed his life. One day having prayed that prayer, he was approached by a girl from the college where he taught. She had spiritual needs in her life. She shared those needs with him. And Norman was able to lead her to faith in Christ. He led her to Jesus. Later, she became a missionary to South America. He joined the visitation group from his church. They went out every Monday night. The first Monday night he went out, the first house that he went to, he knocked on the door and an atheist answered the door. <laughs> he shared the good news. Nothing happened that night, but Norman didn't give up. He went back two, three, four times. On the fourth visit, the man accepted Christ as his Savior. His family was saved. He joined a church and later became a deacon. Now Geisler says, The most rewarding experiences I've had in my Christian life have come not from teaching, not from pastoring or ministering around the world. They have come from meeting with non-Christians and seeing one after another come to personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed. I'm ready. I'm obligated. So I will open my mouth and speak. Maybe you've heard the legend. The legend of when Jesus returned to heaven following his death on the cross and his resurrection from the tomb. The angels gathered in amazement. They gazed at the wounds on his hands and his feet. They shuddered thinking of his great suffering. Finally, Gabriel spoke up. Master, you suffered terribly down there. Do those people know and do they appreciate the extent of your sacrifice? No, said Jesus, not yet. Right now, only a handful of people in Palestine know. Well, then what have you done to let everyone else know, asked Gabriel. Well, I've asked Peter, James, and John, and a few others to spread the news. They're going to tell others who will tell others until the message spreads to the ends of the earth. But Gabriel, knowing the nature of human beings, asked, Okay, what's plan B? I have no plan B, replied Christ. There is no alternative strategy. I'm counting on them. He's counting on us. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for anyone who believes. Whether they be Jew or Gentile. American or Chinese, doesn't matter. If they believe, they can be saved. So, Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me. And may I humbly do my part to win that soul to Thee. And may we so walk and talk that when we reach the end of our life, we'll be able to lie down on the deck of the victory and say, 